everyone, and good morning to the other nine of you that are sitting in the sanctuary here with me. Shaylee and Malaya, I'm going to count on you guys to look really excited this morning, okay? Awesome, thank you. <laughs> Little amen here and there, you know, okay, okay, cool. We're on the same page. So our Advent series, of course, for this season is called Come Emmanuel, and we've been looking, if you, if you haven't been tuning in or if you've, if you've forgotten, we've been looking at the rather unexpected figures that are portrayed in Matthew's genealogy. Uh, in the genealogy of Christ that we see in Matthew's gospel. And we're asking the question, why would Matthew include these women into his genealogy? What's the point or the points that he's trying to make in doing so? Why did it matter so much to include them, these specific women, into the genealogy of Jesus right at the very beginning of his gospel? Like, wouldn't it have looked a little bit better maybe without them there? You know, would it have appeared a little bit more pure? Because again, this, this was very unusual, if not a little bit scandalous. Women, especially of of these kind, were not traditionally included into genealogies. That's just not how it worked. Genealogies were important most of the time for for showing a lineage of important people, so kings, priests, prophets, people with special anointed um, callings. They, They speak of a person's credentials and identity and character. In other words, Whoever the genealogy is for, the lineage that came before speaks to who that person is. Whoever the genealogy is for, the lineage speaks, says something about who they are. Which would mean then that in looking at a character like Ruth, which we're doing this morning, we learn something about who Jesus is. We're learning something about who Jesus is, which is quite the statement to make, because as we've been discovering in each of these previous weeks, each of these four women have rather interesting backgrounds. Ruth is a Moabite. What is she doing in the genealogy of the Messiah? Moabites were a detested people group. If you didn't know that, if you, if you look back in your Old Testament narrative, the Israelites and the Moabites didn't exactly get along very well. Israel had been commanded back in Deuteronomy 23 to avoid them, and it writes this, an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their 10th generation, they shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. If that's not clear enough, I don't know what is. They were not a part of Yahweh's people, the Moabites, Ruth was not a part of the Lord's congregation. So how many of Matthew's audience then do you think naturally shuddered a little bit when they saw her name written into the genealogy of the Messiah? What's she doing there? You you can't have these kinds of people in the line of the Messiah, of the divine king. That That doesn't look very good. But here's the thing. What these genealogies, these that we see in scripture were always meant to do was to show God's faithfulness. His covenant faithfulness from generation to generation through these kinds of hopelessly messed up descendants despite their constant failures. It pointed to him. He gave his blessing again to both Adam and Noah to be fruitful and multiply. He promised Eve that her seed would crush the enemy's head. He promised Abraham that his descendants would be a blessing to the nations. He promised David that a king of his lineage would be established forever. And in these women, we see these promises coming into play, which you would never have expected. The point, they point to the purposes of the God who's been faithful to them. That's the point. These covenant promises are coming into play through the most unexpected people, 
right here in the Messiah's genealogy, and they're pointing to and forming expectations for who this Messiah is, okay? They're pointing to who this Messiah is. And in this next character, we see how her actions anticipate and point to the coming of Jesus. She's named in the first grouping of Matthew's genealogy in chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and note, we looked at her last week, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And so for this morning, we're going to look at the book of Ruth, and we're going to turn, turn to chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 18. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can turn, turn to the book of Ruth. It's right after Judges, if you're not sure where it is. Turn to the book of Ruth, and we're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. It reads this way. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab to live there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, and the other, Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness if you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so just to create a little bit of setting here and backdrop, for more than 10 years, okay, for more than 10 years, Bethlehem, which actually means house of bread, was ironically suffering from a severe drought and famine, an incredibly fertile area that simply was not getting the adequate rainfall that it was accustomed to. 
So Moab was nearby, which, which had some good options for living. But as I've already alluded to, these neighboring nations didn't exactly have the greatest relationship with each other. They both claimed a lineage through Abraham, okay? So they both felt like they came from the same guy. But the Moabites were actually descendants of Lot and had pagan gods. And, and they hadn't been very nice to Israel when Israel came out of Egypt. And so there had always been a level of conflict between these two nations. And as early in Ruth it puts it, these were the days when the judges ruled. So there was, no, there was no unification under Israel. There was no king. And as judges will put it, this was the time when people did as they saw fit. And there was spiraling unfaithfulness over and over and over to God, to the God of Israel. So Ruth then is a story that comes as out, of, out of all of this muck as a story of faithfulness. One scholar put it this way, a lily pad in a cesspool. She just comes out of this, like this magical thing. So Naomi has decided to go back to Bethlehem now. And as we read, God has blessed it again. So that's why she's going back. God has blessed Israel again. And she thinks, okay, we're going to go back now. And this was a 70 to 80 mile journey, which probably took at least about a week. Um, So there's lots of time then, as these women are walking along, to process and to think about what they've been expecting of one another and what their thoughts are for going forward. There's lots of time to think and to process. So they're traveling along this caravan route, and I'm guessing on your screen you can see this map, which should be sort of right about here on the, on the screen right there. Um, this is the journey that they would have taken. So if you can see, um, the arrow is showing the journey to Moab, but just trace it backwards, and that's kind of how they would have been going about along this caravan route, up through the plains of Moab, and then up along the Dead Sea, and then you, they had to cross over the Jordan, which is on the north end of the Dead Sea there. And before then journeying sort of southwest down into Bethlehem, down through Jerusalem into Bethlehem, they would have passed by, they would have been going through a sort of low mountain range and would have passed by the ruins of Jericho. Now, who have we just met that came from Jericho? Rah- yes, <laughs> Shalia and are like, what? Rah- Rahab, who we looked at last week. Now, do you think maybe, just maybe, Ruth had spent enough time with this family to have heard all the narratives of Israel, to have heard about the exodus from Egypt and the wanderings through the wilderness and the crossing of the, of the Jordan River into the Promised Land, and maybe, just maybe, have heard of this, this woman called Rahab whose faithfulness allowed her to be an aid for the spies of Israel, to enable them to march around the city and to conquer it. Just maybe she had heard of the faith of this wonderful woman. Maybe. Anyways, somewhere along this route, as they're going along this road, is when Naomi decides to try to persuade her daughters-in-law to go back to Moab. And we're not sure why she would have waited until now, like goodness knows where they were along the road, <laughs> to say, okay, now never mind, go back. Um, maybe she just didn't want to, she didn't want to be alone. But maybe it was simply doubt on the part of Naomi. God had blessed the land of Israel again with bread, but will he bless her for returning to it? Or is she just bringing her daughters-in-law into further economic and social deprivation? Because here's the deal with, with widows in the ancient world. Here's, here's the deal with, with women like Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. Losing a husband was a social and economic tragedy. Without a male relative to advocate for you and care for you, you're hooped. You've got no legal rights, no protection, no way to fight against injustice, and we see some of those horrific stories elsewhere in the Old Testament. Marriage was the one thing that gave a woman stability. 
which is why women, or which is why widows, were often overlooked and, and uncared for and could quickly, quickly become outcasts, especially if they had no male children who could carry on their husband's lineage. This is why Yahweh is continuously calling Israel to care for the widows and the orphans because these were the ones in society that could easily become the outcasts. This is why Naomi ends up pleading with her daughters-in-law to go back. She sees the hopeless situation awaiting them in Israel. She herself can't produce another son. And even if she got married and birthed another child, which would be kind of strange, but they'd have to wait until that child grew up. It doesn't make any sense. So she says in verse 8, go back. Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. And and just just out of interest's sake, because I think this is fascinating, she says mother's home there. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's strange, right? You would think that she would say father's home because that would imply protection and oversight. But a mother's home referred to all the things that a mother had supervision over, i.e. marital arrangements and marital... Um, sort of relationships that all that all those sorts of arrangements made for a woman's future was done by her mom. So for Naomi then to say when she's referring to the place of a mother's home, she's referring to a future possibility that's waiting for them. She's she's saying go back to your mother's home where something else can be arranged for you, where you can have a different kind of future, where something else can be settled for you. She wants her daughters-in-law to be blessed. She doesn't see that happening with her going back to Israel. And we see here, she's asking for Yahweh's blessing on them, which is interesting. May my God show you kindness, even if you go back to Moab. And and chesed is the word used there. It's a Hebrew word, um, which we don't don't have a great English word for translating it, um, but it often refers to this sort of covenant love and covenant faithfulness. It's sort of like covenant faithfulness, loving kindness, all jumbled up into one beautiful thing. May this God who has this covenant love be faithful to you. May he couch you in his chesed, in his covenant love, and extend blessing to you as you have blessed me. A beautiful thing. That's what Naomi wants for her daughters-in-law, to receive the blessing that she herself can't offer to them. It ends up being enough to convince Orpah, so she kisses her mother-in-law and and starts heading back. But Ruth, we see here, clings to her mother-in-law. And do you remember in Genesis, it says in Genesis that a man is meant to leave his mother and father and cling to his wife? It's again, it's pointing to a sort of covenant love, a covenant bond. It's the same word. Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. Interestingly, she's showing chesed to her mother-in-law. She's showing a covenant love and a covenant faithfulness to Naomi. She's bound herself to her. And Naomi now, and you can imagine this mother-in-law, daughter-in-law situation of like, no, go back. No, I won't. No, go back. And, and, and this back and forth. Like, oh, fine. But she's, she's pulling out all the punches now. She so badly wants her daughters to be blessed. She's trying to persuade her even more. In verse 15, she says this, Look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Notice the addition there, and her gods. In other words, you might yet have success with these other ones. Go back to Moab and, tr- and be blessed by your people and by your gods. Why would you stay with me when this has been my lot, when this has been my situation, when the God of Israel has, has made me bitter? Why would you stay with me? 
when the situation seems so hopeless. Here is the ultimate choice for Ruth. Going with Naomi means adopting her people and her God. Going back means to stay with her people and her gods. But will the gods of Moab help her? Will, will Chemosh, the major deity of that nation, give her a husband and fertility and a good life? You know, will they be faithful to her? She never even knew. She never even had the concept of a God being faithful until she met this one. And based on her reaction, she's already made her choice. Ruth, a Moabite, an outsider, a widow, shows a faithfulness to Yahweh that blows the rest of Israel out of the water. Again, this is the time of the judges. Everybody's doing as they see fit. Here Ruth comes into this, a Moabite, and shows a kind of faithfulness that is exemplary in all of Israel. And what drives her to do this? Loyalty? Faith? A taste of this righteousness? A, a taste of that chesed? Of that covenant-loving faithfulness that she'd never known before? Maybe all of the above? Whatever it is, she's made her decision. Verses 16 through 18, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Don't even make me think about that other option because where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God, where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me. May Yahweh deal with me. Your God deal with me. Be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me, we can't miss this. Ruth invokes the name of the God of Israel, and in doing so, she's indicating that she trusts this God. She's seen enough through this family that she's been a part of now for over 10 years. She's seen enough in this family that she can trust this God. She's adopting Naomi's people, and in turn, she's adopting their God, and she's calling on him to keep her accountable to her vow, to Naomi. Elimelech is gone. Her husband is gone. Her sister-in-law, who is her only connection back to this old life, is gone. All that's left is Naomi. And Ruth is willing to give up everything in order to stay with her. Why? Why would she do that? Because she's found something in this family that's worth sacrificing everything else for. Like the man who found a treasure in a field and sold everything he had because he'd found something that was worth sacrificing everything else for. Which is pretty significant sacrifice for Ruth because there's a good chance that she's going to go to Israel and nobody's going to want to marry her. Yet here she's taking on the role of an eldest son to take care of her widowed mother, a level of responsibility that wasn't necessarily hers to take on. But again, she's practicing this chesed, this, this covenant love, this covenant faithfulness, a loyalty, a loving kindness. As Ed said of Rahab last week, her faith works. Her faith is active. Her faith does something. It's a living faith. Ruth, in, in a kind of New Testament sort of way, has died to herself. And it's this very righteousness, this chesed characteristic that Boaz later uses for Ruth. 
He identifies her with that word. He uses that term to identify her and to accept her proposal to be the family's kinsman redeemer. Now, just a quick aside. This is quite a woman. This is quite a courageous woman. I know we often look at like the Proverbs 31 lady as like the ideal woman, but like, no, 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 no. <laughs> look at Ruth. Look at Ruth. You want to raise your boys to look for a kind of woman? Look at Ruth. <laughs> look for the kind of woman who will give up everything to pursue her God, even the prospect of marriage. That's a courageous woman. And at the end of the book of Ruth, Ruth is able to bear a child with Boaz that carries on the genealogy and the women caring for her say this to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Little did Ruth know that in adopting Yahweh as her God, that in adopting the people of Israel as her people, that she was in fact the one being adopted. She was grafted in because the focus at the end of this story isn't even on the little boy that's born. It's on Ruth. And it was her loving faithfulness and her sacrifice to Naomi that made her stand out to Boaz. It was his loving faithfulness and sacrifice to her that made, her stand, that made him stand out to Naomi. As commentator Block, Daniel Block puts it, no one in this book, this is an incredible book, no one in this book demands that God meet their needs or asks for some divine intervention on his or her own behalf. True covenant faith is expressed by concern for the welfare of others. That is the heart of Hesed. That is the heart of covenant faithfulness. It's concern for the other. It's a faithfulness to the God who knows how to bring outsiders in. Yes, Boaz is often the one here depicted as a foreshadower of Christ in this situation because of his kinsman and redeemer role. But there's already a character in this story who has shown us kinsman redeeming responsibilities and characteristics. That's Ruth. And this is part of Matthew's intention. Ruth brings Emmanuel to Naomi and to Boaz by embodying his kindness and his loving faithfulness. She adopts his character. She images him to her mother-in-law. And in so doing, she, she unknowingly points to this great mission of God. She points to what the Messiah is coming to do, which is to bless the nations. It's why Ruth, a, a Gentile, like Tamar, like Rahab, is named in Matthew's genealogy as a great mother of the faith. The Messiah has Gentile in his blood. And why is that? Because the whole world belongs to him. Because all peoples belong to him. And part of what led to his arrival was the faith of a Moabite woman. Someone who could have easily been set aside forgotten, abandoned, misplaced, a grubby part of scripture that doesn't look very good and so we just want to kind of set it to the side, easily ignored. How often might we miss what God is doing in the world because we presume to know what it's supposed to look like? You know, when we were thinking of, of titles for the sermon series, the 
the subtitle of Unexpected Figures was actually inspired by a film called Hidden Figures. I don't know if you've been able to see it, but I would really encourage you to do so. It follows the story of three African-American women uh, set in Virginia in the 1960s who were part of a whole crew of ladies working for NASA in the mathematics department, all of whom served a vital role in those early days of the, of the US space program. And the unit, of course, that they're working in is segregated uh, by both race and sex. But through various circumstances, the main character, Catherine, there's three main characters, but the main-ish character, Catherine, is assigned to the space task group because of her skills in analytic geometry, which is just mind-blowing, but yeah. So she becomes the first black woman on this team, which is great, but naturally all of the male crew members, all of these male engineers, are quite dismissive of her, and they even force her to kind of have her own like colored coffee pot. There's actually two separate tables because you're not really supposed to touch each other's things. Additionally, because of the segregation, there's no colored bathroom for Catherine in that NASA building where she works. So she's forced to walk a half mile every time to have to go and find a bathroom, to find a colored woman's bathroom in a different building, which forces her, of course, to take longer breaks. So she's disappearing multiple times in the day because she has to go to this bathroom that's half a mile away. And her boss, Harrison, not realizing, of course, that this is what's going on, all he sees is that she's just making these disappearing acts and not coming back for a long period of time. He's getting frustrated, and so he decides to confront her on it. Well, you can imagine how that would have gone. She, of course, is, is by this point to a boiling point. And what follows is a, is a controlled yet obviously furious monologue where she explains to him that there are no colored bathrooms for her to use. There are no colored people bathrooms for her to use in this building. And you see then on Harrison's face this dawning realization. He had had no idea. He had no idea that she was so easily pushed to the outside. Of course he saw what was you know, obviously happening in the, in the office, but he had no idea the, the extent to which it went. He had no idea what was happening. And in the next scene, we see him taking a baseball bat to the no-colored signs that are hanging above the white people's washrooms. In one scene, he just completely obliterates segregation in that whole building. All it took was one voice speaking out. Catherine, of course, went on to calculate and do incredible things. She calculated the trajectories for the Apollo 11 mission and space shuttle missions. But for years, these women remained hidden figures in our history books. We had no idea. And I wonder, have we sometimes done the same to the women in Scripture? Have we lessened their significance because they don't stand out as much as the others? Who are the people in our own day and age who often get forgotten, that are often hidden, that we don't expect? What kinds of people tend to just kind of get set to the side because we don't anticipate that God's going to do something with them? Do we really believe that God, our God, is able to move and to work through them. Ruth was on the outside, a hidden figure, not worth much of anything. Above the Israelite bathrooms were no Moabite signs. But as I said at the beginning, whoever a genealogy was written for the lineage was meant to say something about them. 
about who that person is. Ruth is a signpost for and a conduit of the promised seed, the royal descendant who would finally set loose the mission of God in the world to reach the ends of the earth. See, that's what Matthew's gospel is all about. It's why it starts with this genealogy and it ends with the Great Commission. Go, bless the nations. Why? Because I have the nations in my own blood. Bless the nations. Find the people that are on the outside. The promise of bringing the nations in was already foreshadowed in Ruth, was already being shown through her, and she didn't even realize it or know about it. See, those who at first seem questionable choices for ancestors for Jesus are actually showing us the gospel message. We cannot turn our eyes off to that. They're showing us the gospel message that God can overcome barriers and forgive sins and bring the most unexpected people in at the most unexpected times in history who are endowed with his favor and help to fulfill his purposes. As we saw with Rahab last week and now with Ruth, these women, although on the outside, recognize who this God is. He's not just a small patron deity. He's not just limited to one people group or one land. He's a global God with global reach and global purposes. A God whose most notable characteristic is his covenant faithfulness and loving kindness. As one scholar put it, a God who makes himself known in the valley of the shadow, as Naomi was in, can be trusted in the more comfortable days as well. Ruth is grafted into the genealogy of Jesus because she trusted in the God of Israel. She learned from him, and like Abraham, she was deemed righteous because of that trust. Not because of who she is or where she comes from, but because of her faithful character humble submission, placing oneself into the hands of God, accepting the risks, accepting the task, accepting the realities, no matter how scandalous or terrifying they may be, because of who this God is and how he's demonstrated himself to be, he had proved himself to her and she trusted that. How then has he proved himself to us? How has he proved his character to us, the proof of his loyalty, the proof of his loving kindness, his faithfulness to the promises he's made? How has he done this? It's what all of Advent and Christmas is about. Emmanuel. As Liz said, read earlier, the God who could do it all made himself small. The sending of his son the sending of the king, of a Messiah to be our kinsman redeemer, to be our God among us, to bring in outsiders like us, to come through real messy people, unexpected people like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, you and I, even while we were yet sinners. People who don't know what they're doing, but step forward in faith anyways. That is the proof of his character. The proof of his undeniable love for us. And so I urge us in this Advent season, may we too journey forward in faith. Like Ruth, 
and anticipate God's faithfulness. Anticipate that he's working. Anticipate that he's fulfilling his promises even though we don't always know the road ahead or what it will bring. May we pray as Thomas Merton once did. And I'll finish here with this. And I can imagine Ruth actually probably praying something similar. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, although I may know nothing about it. Therefore, will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me and will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.